0: To Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. I'm Ryan Jacobson and I get to be one of the pastors here at this church. Would you please remain standing with me as you're able for another moment or two as we pray together the Shema. This is a prayer that we pray in each of our services here because it is foundational to our faith in this church. This prayer is a declaration of who we know our God to be and who we are as his followers. You'll see some of us as we pray this prayer raising our pinkies. This is for us a reminder that there's enough power and grace and compassion in God's little finger to change our hearts and our minds and the entire world around us. So please join me in this prayer. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Now hear these words as I read to you from the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And there they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And so it is with these words that Luke closes his gospel. As the scholars have studied this chapter, this gospel, and in particular this chapter, these scholars have suggested that the entirety of Luke chapter 24 was written to be used as the structure for the celebration of the resurrection. The early Lucan church may have used the four short stories that we find within this chapter 24, in a church service, in a single service, or perhaps through several services through the Easter day to celebrate the story of Easter. As I read through this chapter today, or this week, Luke 24, to get the full context of what it is that we'd be talking about this week, I was reminded of the way that we structure our own worship services here at Alamo Heights. Pastor Darrell has taken us before through the traditional Christian liturgical form before, But it's been a little while. And since we're still in the Easter season, we're still celebrating this risen Christ, I'd like to take this morning as an opportunity to offer us a little bit of a reflection and refresher on the liturgical pattern. So this word liturgy, the structure and the flow and the form of the way that we come together to worship is called liturgy. This word liturgy comes from two Greek words, leto, which means to the the public or people and the word ergon which means work and so taken together then our word liturgy comes from a root that means the work of the people liturgy is the work of all of us as we come together to celebrate and to enact and to carry forward and to respond to this story of God From the earliest gatherings of this Christian church and beyond those gatherings into the worship structures of the ancient Jewish faith from which we came, worship has always contained four gestures. These four gestures have been modeled for us based on the theophany stories of the Bible. A theophany is an encounter with God. When somebody encounters the divine, there's a pattern that is usually followed. And so we've modeled our worship off of this pattern. As we look at these different stories, whether it's Moses in the cleft of the rock, or it's Elijah at Mount Horeb, or it's even the woman at the well that encounters Jesus, this pattern emerges. There's four phases in this pattern, and each of these phases is distinct. the The first piece of this worship pattern is called is that God calls His audience to Himself. God initiates the encounter. The second piece to these stories is that God calls the audience to transformation. After he's gathered them together, God offers to them a new alternative vision of who he sees these people to be or the circumstances in which they find themselves. Thirdly, in these encounters, God's audience is given the opportunity to respond. The response in the scriptures is pretty varied. Sometimes it's joy and wonder, and sometimes it is disbelief and fear and doubt. Sometimes the audience says to God, here I am, send me. And sometimes the audience says, I'm not the guy. After this opportunity to respond, though, there is the fourth piece. And this fourth piece is that God then sends his audience back into the world with a new task. God gives these people something to do and then empowers them to do it. In terms of our liturgy here that we build at our church and throughout our Christian history, these four pieces of the divine encounter we call the gathering, the word, the table, and the sending. We build each service off of these four words. This morning we began our service with a song called Let It Shine. This song, if you listen to the lyrics, is an invitation for us to gather together as a community to both celebrate and to await a word from our living God. As we moved on from that song, Donna opened us up with the gathering prayer, and then we celebrated part of our community, both through the crosses and through the announcements of our children that are getting scholarships and moving on from here and into college. From this gathering portion, we moved into the word portion of this service. It started with the vi- uh, the video featuring Mark Labberton. We watched this video because it gets us into the headspace that we need to be in to talk about the act of worship and how he defines it as a dangerous act. We followed the video with the song, a song called Take Heart, that prepares us for the call of transformation. We take heart because transformation is, isn't always the easiest thing to do. For us here in this church, the sama is a part of the word because it echoes our scripture and draws us into the love of God, the love of neighbor, and the love that we have of ourself that our scripture will show us as well. We read the text, of course, this morning from Luke, and my hope for you is that the words that I've prepared this week would offer you an invitation to transformation as well. When I'm done, you'll then have an opportunity to respond. We'll move to the table. Sometimes our response here is through song. Sometimes our response is through communion. Sometimes it's through our community talking times. But we all have the opportunity to respond. And finally, we'll be sent. God will send us back into the world with new eyes to see and open hearts and open minds, and our transformation that we've experienced this morning will give us a new task as we encounter the world we go to. We'll be sent with a blessing and a benediction and a song that offers strength and perseverance. So these are the four parts of our service, gathering, word, table, and sending. As we consider this 24th chapter of Luke, we see that these four pieces fit very well onto the four stories of Luke 24. Now, the verses that we read started about midway through 24, so I will offer you a brief explanation of what happened before what we read. This chapter opens with an account of the discovery of an empty tomb. The women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna, and several other unnamed women have been have come to the tomb in order to prepare the body of Jesus for his burial. But as they arrive, they find that this body has strangely disappeared. Instead, these two women, or these several women, encounter two men dressed in clothes that gleam like lightning, and these men proclaim to the women that the Christ has been risen. The men also remind the women that Jesus had told them all along that this is the way that things would be that Jesus told them he'd be crucified and, rose and rise again on this third day. The women with this news return to their community. As it applies to the liturgy of the celebration of the resurrection, this story serves as a gathering. The women are first gathered, and they're gathered around mystery and wonder. They're confused, and they're startled. They find that what they expected is not to be found. They do have the reminder that this was told to them from the beginning, but it's still mystery and it's still confusion. After these women are gathered together in this particular place, they then go to the rest of their community and gather together with the wider community with this news of wonder. Last week, Pastor Dinah took us through the second short story of this chapter. In that story, two disciples are walking home to Emmaus from Jerusalem discussing the alarming and strange events of the last three days. They're joined by a stranger that they do not know who proceeds to teach them of Moses and the prophets and the Messiah, and they share a meal together, and as this man, this stranger, breaks the bread, it's revealed to them that the stranger is indeed Jesus himself. As soon as their eyes are opened to this reality, though, this Jesus vanishes. The two realize that their entire encounter with this man has warmed their hearts. They get back on the road immediately to journey back to Jerusalem, and they, like the women, join their community to share this news of wonder. In the Easter liturgy that we're discussing, this story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus serves as the word. Jesus talks to these two through the scriptures opening their eyes to the new depth and to the new meaning and reminding them again about why the Messiah had to suffer before he could enter his glory. These disciples tell themselves and their guests of the sad events that they've experienced in Jerusalem, but instead Jesus offers to them an alternative vision of what is reality. He subverts their expectations much like the women's and invites them into changing their minds about what really is. And so thus we come to our passage today. We've probably already guessed that the passage that we've read today contains both the table and the sending portions of this ancient Easter celebration. The response and the sending even somewhat blur together in the text that we read. There's a part of this text that's clearly response and table, there's a part of it that's clearly the sending, and there's a piece in the middle that joins the two together brilliantly. And so the response portion, the table portion of the service, begins with this. Immediately following the return of these two disciples from Emmaus, they've gathered together with their community discussing these strange events. The empty tomb, the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus, there's even a mention of an appearance to Simon Peter, though there's no narration of the appearance. As the community is talking, Jesus suddenly, it says... Stands, stands among this community and says to them, Boo! It's not quite boo, but their reaction tells us that it's something quite frightening. The words that are actually recorded is that Jesus says to them, Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. But these people thinking that they are seeing a ghost, this group of disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, is described as being both terrified and frightened. And the words that describe this terror are not mild words. They reflect the same kind of fear that Luke has used before to talk about war. If we were to leave this church and find that war has broken out on the streets of San Antonio, that's the terror that these disciples are are experiencing. And yet Jesus offers them peace. Shalom. Shalom, of course, we've talked about here as a much bigger word What we typically mean when we say peace Usually when we talk about peace or we see peace in the news It means that there's some kind of absence of conflict Or that two estranged parties have somehow reconciled But when we're talking about shalom here Shalom is more Shalom is wholeness and it's completion And it's everything in the world, in the universe, in the cosmos In its right place working together in harmony in the way that God had intended for it to work. And so when we pray for shalom, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like the scripture suggests, we're not praying for the absence of conflict in the Middle East. We're praying for wholeness, for completion, for a place in which three major monothe- monotheistic religions find their home. We pray not just for conflict, to find compromise, but that all that are there might work together for the betterment of this world. Shalom encompasses everything, its mind and its body and its spirit and its community and its creation. And so Jesus assures his disciples with shalom. He says, it's me, it's really me. See my hands and feet, touch me, and know that it is I that stand among you, See my flesh and bone and feel it and know that I am just like you. And while you're at it, do you have something to eat? Evidently, this resurrection and walking down the road and vanishing and reappearing again works up a little bit of an appetite because he needs a meal, enjoys a meal with these disciples. And it's at this point that the disciples finally respond with joy, amazement, and wonder. They still can't believe, though, who it is that's standing in front of them. Finally, Jesus once again opens this audience's eyes to the scriptures, giving them a word, explaining again that the Messiah had to suffer before he could rise again on this third day. Think of the many different responses that we find within this third story of the chapter. The disciples experience wonder. They experience terror. They experience doubt and fear and joy, and amazement, and wonder yet again. They respond tangibly by looking on the body of the risen Christ, by touching the flesh and the bones of this Christ, and presumably they even join this Christ at the table. The pattern in this appearance follows closely the same pattern that happened in the first two stories, particularly the Emmaus story. It begins with this wandering com- wondering conversation and then the appearance of the Christ, a teaching of Scripture, shared food at a table, and then wonder and joy. But this story, this third one, does add another element. The mystery of the resurrection is certainly suggested in each of the stories, but it is in this one that the Christ adamantly makes clear to the disciples that this is the man before them that was with them before the death. Luke Timothy Johnson says that a close reading reveals that Luke has the delicate task of asserting both the reality of Jesus' presence now and its difference from the former presence. In the Emmaus story, Jesus is initially unrecognizable and has the ability to vanish. And in this story, he can suddenly appear in their midst, and yet they can look and touch and feel and see that he's really there. It is truly myself, Jesus proclaims. He's here, but something is different. And throughout the Christian scriptures, this tension in the material reality of this resurrected body is never fully resolved. The mystery of resurrection remains. And it's with this that we come now to the sending. Jesus leads his disciples to Bethany, which is a small village on the top of the Mount of Olives, and here he lifts his hands to his disciples and he begins to bless them, and as he does so, the text says he's taken up into heaven. The disciples after this worship this risen and ascended Christ and return to Jerusalem and the temple with great joy. And this gospel ends as it started in the temple. At the beginning of this gospel, we have an account of Zechariah at the time of worship receiving news of his coming son. Fred Craddock says of the closing here that Luke began this gospel with the scene in Jerusalem, in the temple, at the hour of worship. Events in that opening scene generated anticipation in the reader. God is at work. Something marvelous is about to happen. And again here, the reader is in Jerusalem, in the temple, At the hour of worship, events in this closing scene again generate anticipation. God is at work, and something marvelous is about to happen. Now I mentioned that the response and the sending of this liturgy blur the lines. There is a task that is given by Jesus in the sending, but this task is joined to an invitation to a response as well. After Jesus spells out the scriptures, but before he leads this group to Bethany for the final blessing, he says to them, Repentance and forgiveness of sin will be proclaimed to all the nations. You are my witnesses. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. If we were to join God in his mission... Of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, of bringing flourishing life to this place that is called home for you and for me, then our invitation today is repentance and forgiveness. N.T. Wright says of the text, This is the only way forward from here, the one way forward that most of us or all of us find the hardest to repent and to forgive. The invitation to repent means, literally, to change our minds." The Greek word translates as "change your mind." Cornelius Planaga defines sin as this culpable disturbance of Shalom. And so to repent is to see that where we have disturbed or disrupted or restricted Shalom, to see these places and then change our minds about them. Where do we sin? Where do we disturb wholeness? Where do we disrupt harmony? Or where do we prevent reconciliation? We need to change our minds and transform. This invitation is also to forgiveness, though. This reminds us to look at where our neighbors have sinned. Where have they disturbed the wholeness? Where do they disrupt harmony? Where do they introduce conflict? I have a feeling that most of us can probably see where they've done it a little bit more than we've done it. But the invitation is again to change our minds even about this. To forgive our neighbors for the places that they have disturbed shalom. To maybe even forgive ourselves for the places that we do it. This is an invitation to a life of resurrection, through repentance and through forgiveness. And we have the task going forward from this place to model this resurrection through forgiveness and through repentance. This was the commission from the very beginning. Not just the commission to Luke, but the commission to Abraham, to Moses, to Deborah, to David, to Isaiah, to Ezra, and down the line. This task was the very life and the very death and the very resurrection of this Jesus. And as we've seen today, this transformation, this resurrection is strange and mysterious. This resurrection takes us to places that we might not have thought that we would go, and it might be confusing not just to us, but to the people around us. We and they may respond with wonder and we and they may respond with fear. But to live this life of change and transformation is, um, is sometimes to suffer. Sometimes something needs to die. But this is the life of resurrection and new creation. As Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, "'it remains just one seed, "'but if it dies, it produces many seeds.'" And with this, we are sent from the Easter liturgy. This ends our celebration of resurrection. We have now become the witnesses. We're seeing and we have seen several endings around us. In this scripture, Jesus has ascended. Here in this church, our senior pastor is gone. In the lives around us, we see that our seniors are graduating, going to college. While these are all endings, we know that each of these is actually a new beginning as well. Luke, while finishing the Gospel of Luke, continues the story of Jesus the Christ through his followers. And as these pages close, the pages of Acts begins. We here wait probably with both excitement and a little bit of anxiety for our new rabbi to lead us. And we wait, too, probably with both excitement and anxiety for college dorms and for emptying nests. But as we wait, we know that these endings all mean new beginnings as well. And as Fred Craddock shared with us, events in these endings again generate anticipation. God is at work, and something marvelous is about to happen. Amen.